Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dungeons and Dragons podcast. This is your host, Bart Carroll, along with Shelley Mazinoble and Trevor Kidd. In today's episode, we continue our coverage of Dungeon Master Appreciation Month. First, we speak with artist Tyler Jacobson and senior world building art director Richard Witters to discuss a forthcoming project in the works. And then we speak with R&D's senior designer, Chris Perkins, about his experiences as a dungeon master to the stars. Artist Tyler Jacobson last spoke with us back in September looking at his glorious cover illustrations for the Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide. Senior art director Richard Witters spends his days providing concepting and world building for Dungeons and & Dragons. And for both Tyler and Richard, their work includes the forthcoming game Sword Coast Legends due out later this year from Endspace. But before we touch upon the game, uh, we wanted to ask sort of how your relationship first formed professionally. Okay. Um, a few years back, uh, I brought Tyler in on a, on a Magic the Gathering concept push. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think your first one was... It was Theros, I think. Was it Theros? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it was early Theros stuff. My first full push was for cons. Cons of Tarkir. So yeah. you're on the Dungeons & Dragons team now, but before that you were spending your, your working days on the Magic the Gathering concepting team. Yeah, yeah. I was on the world-building and creative team for Magic the Gathering for about seven years. And my move over to D&D is sort of moving that type of capacity to D&D world building, which is kind of where Tyler and other talented folks like Tyler come in because I'm sort of like, I like working with these guys and they do awesome stuff. So I want to translate this over to what the to D&D that I'm working on now. Um, and yeah, Tyler was great to work with and he, in doing the covers, for the for the D and D stuff, which was just a bit before I moved over, I was sort of halfway in transition right there. Um, he just fits the brand really well, and he's awesome to work with. Um, so that's sort of how that sparked was back in the magic days, and I was like, we need to get this guy working with us on D and D. Do we steal you from Magic, Tyler? Are you doing any magic stuff now, or is it all D and D as far as we're concerned? I'm doing both, so okay. I kind of split it out pretty evenly. Um, but your true love, clearly D and D. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make this clear here. Yes. Other parts of the building. Tyler's ours. We just loan them out to you every once in a while. Uh, so in those first days, how did that process sort of work back and forth? Did you provide sort of uh, concepting sketches or directions or art orders, and then you would go back and forth with Tyler? Uh, and working on the in space piece specifically. Oh, I, I uh, meant even I, further back, back oh, in the magic back. days. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, like, I mean, before artists came in, the, the way a concept push works on Magic is before the artists even came in, the creative team for Magic could sort of, like, uh, get the general gist of the world down. So we'd written some things. There may be some sketches done. We tried to have some reference ready, um, things like that. But then it basically was a bunch of artists in a room and a giant three-week jam session of, like, this is really cool, this doesn't quite fit, and just sort of filtering through it. And a wall gets filled full of artwork, and we kind of filter through it until we have a world. Um, it's a very rapid process compared to, like, video games or movies. Um, and, and like I said, for D&D, the process is... Uh, I'm now pushing it to that same type of model, where it's like, let's, let's dig into a setting mm-hmm. um, or a theme, 
and let's just flesh it out and we'll bring in good creative people. Um, that includes writers uh, who, like certain writers who may have worked on previous products or writers we just want to work with, and also really talented artists to work on stuff. Um, so that's basically sort of the model we're going for right now. So when it comes to world building for Dungeons and Dragons then specifically, is that, are you working on creating new worlds if you can talk about that or is it sort of reconcepting the existing worlds of the Forgotten Realms, a little of everything? Uh, I th it's a mixture. Um, there's a few classics that we know our fans want to see and it's always the classics that you're kind of like, I really want to take a stab at this but also I don't want to ruin it. Uh, so, it's, so that's like a touchy line. Um, there are other things that are more like D&D themes, uh, which allows us a little more flexibility in world building. Um, so just a, a theme could be something very, very broad, like a dungeon delve. That's maybe a little too broad, but that could be a theme for like a whole setting, a new thing. And we just bring people in and say, hey, this is cool, let's flesh this out to like a mini setting or a mini you know adventure mm -hmm. um, and just sort of get all the creative there. And once we have that as sort of a, a bucket of cool ideas that we've narrowed down, that is shared out as well to our partners um, who make games, write books, you know, make miniatures, everything like that. So for the uh, Sword Coast Legends, for the N-Space game, what sort of direction was, was coming your way, Tyler, as far as what, what the, the team was looking for? Yeah, because we kind of threw in an extra little thing there, right? Because you're working with the guys over at Digital Extremes and InSpace. It's not just us. So what was that like? Um, it's, it's, I mean, there's definitely the different interaction because I'm working with new art directors. But um, I guess first and foremost, the villains was the main um, hit so that was what we want to feature so it needs to be you know menacing and um, foreboding I guess would be a good term for it um, that was the our starting point um, and they had some ideas on what the villains are going to look like and handed that reference off to me yeah when I was when I heard they were they were interested in grabbing you for doing their art I was really excited and I was like this is gonna be great it's gonna look one of our covers Tyler does awesome work so uh, I just saw that first sketch that came through and I was like it was just it was just like pencil. It was pencil work. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is a really big demon. I didn't know anything about the villain yet. And I'm trying really hard not to say his name because it's probably <laughs> not spoiled yet. But uh, um, there, there are two villains on that cover, right? There's like there's the big demon guy and then there's a, another guy, the, the drow looking guy. Yeah, smaller guy. And that's one of the another focal point was to get menacing size and scale. Mm -hmm. And the demon is enormous, so it's um you get this sort of juxtaposition of a smaller evil guy and then wow, that big guy behind him big deal. Is it, uh, is it easier to achieve that sort of juxtaposition on something a bit larger, uh, a game cover or a book cover, as opposed to, say, going back to the Magic cards, where you've got a very finite amount of space to work yeah, with? Yeah, as an artist, uh, definitely. I mean, I know where the art's going to live. The art's going to live on a book cover, so that's many inches to deal with, whereas mm -hmm. the live space for art on a Magic card is about two inches wide, so you kind of have to think differently. Um, there's, there's, a, I guess compositional aspects that need to be addressed. You know, on a card, it really needs to read very well, mm -hmm. whereas um, you got a lot more space for detail and embellishment on a cover. I suppose I would ask you the same question, Richard. For 
Transitioning from from magic to Dungeons and Dragons, is there more space that you get to work with now, or because it's world building and concepting, you always were able to sort of visually create to the you know the size that you needed, and then it would be uh, taken down from there. Uh, yeah, it's actually an interesting change mm-hmm. uh, because magic world building, <clears throat> when we had a concept push with artisan and everything like that was really the, the heart and soul of it were the mechanics, right? So we do need big green creatures. Mm-hmm. We do need, you know, blue, you know, sorcerers and stuff like that. Like we, there are buckets to be filled. There's almost like a checklist to say we can be creative, but we also need things to fill particular cards. Um, D&D world building stuff that we're doing right now is way more flexible uh, because we can just add things and say there are there is no color pie like we don't have to say we need red creatures here it could just be like no this is this set's just all about you know whatever you know so it's it's way more open I'm trying not to let out it's really tempting to let out stuff we're working on <laughs> yeah. yes uh, so by the time this podcast airs we'll have announced uh, Sword Coast Legends mm-hmm. and we have obviously announced Elemental Evil as our next campaign storyline uh, we haven't announced anything beyond that, but obviously uh, Richard and Tyler and, and folks working in the building are are already moving on to to the next next yes. big thing. It'll be the next yeah. podcast with these guys. We'll talk about all this stuff, <laughs> right. and there'll be new things that they'll struggle not to talk about. So yeah. that's how this will work. It's, it's it's kind of exciting this year in particular because we're we're trying to get ahead mm-hmm. on a few things, and and like I said, the the world building creative side is is really open. Uh, there's there are a lot of things that we can just say this is just a really cool visual and we want that to propagate mm-hmm. like through a campaign you know, like this is a great teaser so it's it's much more open and we can just sort of get the right creative people in a room and say let's let's make this fun you know um, and hopefully we do, like we don't want it so open that no parameters is crippling but it, it is sort of there's lots of room just to come up with cool images cool stories and stuff like that Back to the villains a little bit that you did here. Uh, so, the the demon. Uh, what kind of demon is he? Do, do you know? Hmm? He's a big one. A big one. <laughs> were there any like visual cues when you were making him that, that set him apart from others like him, or or anything like that? Um, he had some. I mean, he was fairly realized in the reference that they provided me with. But um, I did on my own. I did tweaks to sort of make him a lot more. I guess put a razor's edge on him. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, I guess the the cue would have been fire specifically for him. He's a lot of fire. <laughs> he's hot. <laughs> he's he's hot. So so you think he's sexy? Is what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Demons are sexy. They can be. Sometimes they're just scary. Well, okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, we had a connect with their art director Chris Brumby uh, early on um, at at Endspace, and. That demon was actually pushed into a certain zone because we suggested uh, certain existing types of demons he could use. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm. oh, you could use this one or that one or that one. Um, but they sort of had a picture in their head. They're like, we want this guy to be uh, sort of similar to certain existing demons, but also he's sort of pushing to gain rank. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's a, he's a bit more unique. So the concept artists at Endspace who... I forget his name, and I feel horrible about it, but he did good work uh, and designed the demon for them that was sort of like in between a very unique 
you know, upper level demon, mm-hmm. and one of the more common, uh, you know, standard demons that we would use in D and D. Right. He's not like he's when you see him eventually, you're not going to be like, oh, I've never seen anything like that before. He's he has some familiarity to him. It kind of like a. I mean, I don't know if I'm mixing my devils and demons. I'm really bad at this. Sorry, all my fellow D and D fans out there. We kind of like a pit fiend. Um, mm-hmm. But not exactly like you're talking about. So yeah, he's got something new to him, but he's also not incredibly alien and unfamiliar. And he's it, hot. It would be very strange yeah. if we were just talking about this uh, without showing it. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and make the assumption that because it's, we've it, announced it, the game, we'll have the key art on the uh, podcast article page as well yes. for people to take a look at the cover. And we'll even get the names of people that we forgot or butchered in the actual text <laughs> below. So everybody will at least be recognized on the page. That's how it works. Uh, so I wanted to kind of ask a little bit broader beyond maybe just the, the halls of Wizards of the Coast. When we're talking about world building, are there other examples out in the world and other media spaces that you look at as far as they've done a particularly good job of creating a world, either visually or creatively or in a storytelling way, that you might pull some inspiration or um, you know influences from? Um, oh, I'm... I do, but it's also a thing you want to avoid or other people's brands looks. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like a hybridization of like, that looks really good and we want something in that vein, but we don't want that, of course, because that's theirs. We want to be set aside. Um, so <clears throat> I think it was last year or maybe a, a little longer than that, there was a GDC panel mm-hmm. where the team working on Destiny mm-hmm. uh, actually talked about world building and went through their process. Um, and that excited the hell out of me because it's so rare to get a peek behind the scenes like that. Like, you can get behind-the-scenes looks at, say, a movie like Avatar or something, and they'll be like, here's how we built this new world, you know, like, um, and things like that. But to see, um, to see how another company does it is sort of a rarity. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew from years of working on Magic, it's like, I ran into several people who weren't even aware that we that we had this like whole concept, you know, Bible, and and all that type of thing. But uh, yeah, so the the process is sort of uh, just hopefully get the best creative people you can and and weed out uh, all the coolest ideas you can. Or I should say weed out the bad ideas and keep the coolest <laughs> ideas. Yeah, we don't uh, like cool ideas here. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but like I said, it, it's hard to uh, have comparison with other people because we bring in a lot of concept artists who actually work on video games. Mm-hmm. And it's quite a long process to do uh, world building and concepting for video games. And we do it here at Wizards. We do it really rapidly and and just sort of nail it down. Uh, really fast and then let it propagate. You mentioned that earlier that the concepting process here is, is a much quicker process. Is there a reason why it tends to be a little bit elongated on the video game side of things? Uh, I, well, video games get right down to specifics. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's one big thing. You know, like if you have a choice in a video game of uh, 50 different characters or 100 different variations on characters and all that, like somebody is going to design all those things uh, I had a friend of mine who worked, who did concepting on a video game. He spent, you know, a couple of weeks just doing variations on doors, right? So uh, for the products that we have, uh, we're, we're just trying to catch the gist of it. 
Um, and we don't have to like model and build every single object and every tree and every plant and all that stuff. So it is more rapid, but, but we still keep that, like I said, we still keep and want that same level of talent uh, where it's like, and, and we don't have a person like Tyler painting doors for two weeks. <laughs> right. uh, I'm sure he appreciates that. <laughs> yeah, it's just fantastic. He means that literally, the door <laughs> of the office. Yeah, you are hitting the notes of, you know, you want to get the look of everything as opposed to actually physically constructing everything, which is what the video game industry has to do a lot of. Mm -hmm. And you you mentioned earlier that it, it's also a part of finding the visual identity of the brand, or you were mentioning avoiding the visual identity of other brands. Is this a time uh, when you guys are working on, on world building for Dungeons and Dragons that you are helping set the visual identity of what the brand will be moving forward? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and the tough part is, though we're using uh, a lot, there's a lot of overlap in the talent pool, um, when it comes to artists. Uh, in, in my head anyway, D&D has a very different feel from Magic. Mm -hmm. um, I was described it on the sliding scale of, on one end is Lord of the Rings, which is very traditional fantasy, and on the other end is like the Avengers movie. Uh, Magic is a little more towards the Avengers movie side of fantasy. Uh, they, they sort of have a super heroic kind of fantasy. Mm -hmm. I think D&D is a little bit the other way, where we have more like scrappy heroes who are a little more down to earth. Uh, our characters are maybe uh, third to fifth level, and they're not planeswalkers. <laughs> you know? They're usually dealing with some, if you're looking at Tyler's work for the, for the core books, they're usually dealing with some type of horrible monster, and you're not sure how well they're doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's ambiguous, you know, the adventure. I mean, that's the whole point of the game, you know? Will you win? Will you lose? How's it going to go? And how are you going to react to it? So. Talk about establishing that feel. I mean, we've definitely used you heavily for the new edition of D&D &D and, of course, for this new game from InSpace. What, if you had to, like, figure themes or a feel that ties, you know, the work that you've done together so far, what, what do you think you would say about that? What, what, what is it that ties them all together? Um, what I was going for, and with the various art directors for those core books that I worked with, was uh, we wanted a sense of, like, cinematic scale, um, sort of action-packed moment in a film or something. Mm -hmm. And that was our sort of our starting point. We want that cinematic hit. And we, we pushed that in, in the two covers that I was working on. You know, they're sort of really wide-angled, um, you know, wide shots, and then, but you're really in the monster's face, yeah. so to speak. No, it definitely feels like the moment at the table that there's a big reveal or a big encounter, or that moment that you remember. Mm -hmm. It's encapsulated very nicely in those covers. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to let you guys get back to world building and concepting and creating beautiful visuals, but uh, we certainly thank your time for joining us on the podcast today. Trevor, did you have any final questions? Or? Nope, it's always a delight to have you guys. I'm sure we'll have you again soon, like we are saying, once we get a little bit closer to the summer and we have more stuff we can talk about. Yes. Because uh, we never talk about things in the summer, ever. <laughs> no, no, it'll, it'll, it'll be great next time we have you guys on. So thank you again for coming. It was a great time. Yeah, thank you so much Thanks. for having us. Thanks, guys. Fans of PAX and the D&D live show should recognize the voice of our next guest who has become fairly synonymous with the art of dungeon mastering. As senior designer at Wizards of the Coast's world building, Chris Perkins has been instrumental in both the shaping and the running of the game. 
Chris also braves the stage at PAX and PAX East to run the adventurers of Acquisitions Incorporated through their latest perils and wrote the long-running DM Experience column on the D&D website. So thanks for joining us today, Chris, for DM Appreciation. Yes, Yay. it's a great pleasure to be here. <laughs> Isn't it weird that every time I hear your name, I feel the need to applaud? You are my agent. You're supposed to applaud. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. Well, you're his agent. i got to remember that. I yeah. am his agent, that's, yes. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to start with some nostalgia trip in the Wayback Machine here. Um, I've talked with you a lot about DMing. Surprise, surprise. Uh, you've been in one or two of my groups, too. Well, yeah, I have been. That's true. I've killed a few of your characters. You have. You've also <laughs> let me kill people that I probably shouldn't have killed as far as <laughs> the rest of the table is concerned. Um, but f going back, looking at how you started, what was the first thing you ran as a DM? What was that? Was that a homemade adventure? Was that something that was already written? What was that? My first adventure was a homemade adventure. Uh, Not surprising. Yeah. At the, <laughs> at the time, I didn't have much in the way of rule books or anything growing up in rural Canada. And so I made a dungeon that pretty much filled up a whole piece of graph paper. It had a certain Gygaxian nonsensicalness to it. And I just basically put monsters in every room in the order in which they appeared in the monster manual. So like you fought the A monsters first, and then the B monsters, and then the C monsters, and the D monsters. It had no logic. Uh, no sense of, you know, this monster should be in a room appropriately sized uh, <laughs> to contain its bulk. So you had a dragon in like exactly. a 10 by 10 and yeah. you didn't really know what was going on. So players must have been confused. We went from a giant ant to a beholder. It was very confusing. And I only had one player and he was playing six characters. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of character development going on either. Pretty much, pretty much when he ran out of characters, he'd just roll up six more. I like that loosey-goosey, the rules. Yeah. Yeah. How does a young child in rural Canada discover Dungeons & Dragons anyway? Accidentally. Um, I walked into a store and there was just literally one D&D book on one shelf um, next to some porn. <laughs> 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 no, I, I, and uh, I just picked it off the shelf and it's like, this is the coolest thing ever. I took it home. The D&D book. Yeah, yeah, I want to yeah, point the, out, <laughs> the D&D book was, was cooler than the porn. Right? And then I went back and I got the D&D book. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it was actually the Monster Manual. So imagine trying to learn a game from, the, from only having the Monster Manual. You have nothing else. Yeah. Um, and just trying to sort of backward engineer what all the numbers in that book meant. It meant that the first few D&D games I played had absolutely nothing to do with D&D <laughs> or, or didn't resemble D&D as it was ever uh, meant to be played. This actually explains so much about you now. Like yeah. looking at the and work then, you do and, then, and like what, what what character do you play? I play the DM. And then a couple that's, weeks that's later Perkins. when I, you know, scrapped up a few more loonies or whatever the money was back then. <laughs> uh, pelts. I went, yeah, pelts. <laughs> I went and I spent three beaver pelts to get a, a thin blue covered book that basically outlined the basic game rules. And from that I realized just how badly I'd been playing it. And uh, conformed or more. Or how awesome you were conformed, playing it. Conformed, no, badly. <laughs> conformed more to how Gary Gygax intended the game to be played. Did you ever get more than one player back in those days? I did. In fact, uh, prior to me leaving Canada, I had as many as three Whoa, players. Whoa, that's like... That's the like entire northeast corner of Canada. Well, when every person in Canada <laughs> lives, every person in Canada <laughs> lives <laughs> fifty <laughs> miles away from the next nearest person in Canada, it's a little hard to get together. The first it. segment we were talking to Richard Witters, and I didn't realize he was also from the far north of Canada. Yes, he's from New Brunswick, guys, uh, close to to where you grew up, or completely? yeah, we were very close. We're like two thousand miles apart. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's all Canada, that's right? Where like it's he, it's a tiny tiny little place. Where yeah. did he grow up? 
North Canada. But what was the town? New, name? New Brunswick oh, is okay. the is the province where he grew up. So I actually know these Canadian provinces because of hockey, oh. because our oh, okay. the hockey team where I grew up played a lot of these far off yeah. like Saint John. Well, north of the border, Prince we're, Edward, we're, Prince Edward we're all taught to appreciate hockey at a young age. In fact, yeah. we're, uh, all Canadian boys are born with hockey skates on. Oh, ow. Yeah, it makes for very tough pregnancies. <laughs> did, you, did you have any hockey references in your early D&D games? No. Oh, come on. <laughs> I did want to ask, though, uh, presuming that first player didn't make it all the way through the dungeon, in your career now, has there ever been a monster that you haven't yet inflicted on a party that you would still like to? Oh, gosh. Well, there, there are lots of monsters I've never been able to inflict on a party, uh, which is one of the glorious things about D&D is you never seem to run out of monsters. <laughs> um, uh, one monster from the original books I've never had an opportunity to use, which I'd love to, was the Titanothere. That's which the looked like the prehistoric the, guy? The prehistoric uh, monster with the handlebar-shaped um, yeah. horn. <laughs> it's like you were meant to ride around on its head. Okay. Sweet. Um, Which is, of course, what you would have someone doing in your campaign, right? Right. right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I was never able to use that classic first edition monster. <laughs> I never included Irish deer in my adventure either. Irish deer? In the monster manual, there's a monster called Irish deer, which is really strange when you consider, like, most D&D campaign settings aren't Earth. <laughs> yeah, right. There were a few monsters. They clearly took from myth and legend from a lot of areas, and sometimes the names weren't, yeah. like, filed off. In a, right. Exactly. I'm still emotionally scarred by the fact that there's a scarecrow in the monster manual. Yeah, which traces its origins back to the first edition Fiend Folio. That's just so creepy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, they're, they're critters, they're... They are things that are designed to scare birds, yeah. not humans, but of course we're going to end up with fears of them. I mean, I'm afraid of clowns, so oh, yeah. I'm weird. Yeah, why aren't there any clown monsters? That's a really good question. <laughs> that seems <laughs> like an oversight. Lots of people are scared of, of clowns. It'll be some kind of supplement thing that we add later. Maybe because it didn't feel doesn't feel particularly medieval, but it could. Sure. It could, yeah, jester, it could be a clown. Like the and, oh, a jester. Harlequin yeah. type jester. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Creepy, creepy. All right. I think we've... Let's work on that. That's back great. back to how we can help DMs. Because oh. <laughs> anyway. we, we can talk to Chris about it, all sorts of stuff. I know. So about, well, I guess that's not really about DMs, but it's one of my favorite Go stories. Quickly. I mean, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but there you did have a meandering path on how you got here to Wizards, and part of that path involved spending your summers in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. That's right. Um, when I was uh, in college... And I would basically take my summers off and drive down to Lake Geneva and basically camp outside the TSR building until they let me inside. <laughs> and they would uh, prop me up in the periodicals department and I'd, go th I'd help them go through magazine submissions, which at that time was pretty daunting. I mean, there were piles that were taller than I, were, I was. And they would basically just feed me bear claws and I would go through Real the submissions it's and, and, and put submissions on the desks of the editors if I thought that they were particularly good or imaginative or sort of filled in a gap in D&D lore or offered something to the magazines that I hadn't seen before. Did you slip in your own submissions in that pile? This whole pile of submissions is by uh, Christopher Perkins. Park, Chris Perkins. <laughs> Perkins. You'd be surprised how well that <laughs> works. Uh, actually, it was very informative from the sense that it gave me a real keen understanding of what the editors were looking for, because I could talk to them, mm -hmm. and also what uh, other contributors were interested in, and just sort of oh. getting a sense of 
all the like, and you'd see weird patterns too. Like you'd see five different articles submitted within five days of each other, all on the same topic, all unsolicited. It's like there was just something hmm. in the public consciousness or something yeah. in the ether that that forced these five people to basically have the same idea at the same time and submit articles about the same topic. That is weird. It's so weird. But it, it even happened after I became the editor of uh, Dungeon Magazine. I'd get piles of manuscripts, and it was shocking how much overlap there was. Do you remember one of the maybe currents of zeitgeist that were, was coming in at the time? Uh, one of them I remember, like, we had a big rash of desert-themed mm -hmm. adventures. And I don't know what it was brought on by. Sometimes you can trace it to something in the news. An untypically hot summer that year. Yeah, it could, yeah, it could be a hot <laughs> summer. Uh, it's 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 not surprising that you get a lot of Arctic adventure submissions, for instance, after um, from Canada. From well, yeah, from Canada, <laughs> right? Yeah. But see, and I think I love that story because I think I will use you as an example for my son when I say you have to keep trying and don't give up because. Yeah. There was this young Canadian boy who would drive all the way to Wisconsin in the summers <laughs> to work, you know, to try to get a job at his dream Sleep place. at their yeah. front door. Yeah. yeah. And now look at you. No, it was a, it was a very weird epiphany for me I, when I was, I was very, very young when I first got into D&D. I think I was 10 uh, when I found the first book. And then it was 13 when I remember telling uh, my friend David Harris that I was going to work on Dungeons and Dragons nice. with no sense of how I was going to get there. And right. pretty much everything else along the way was just further little baby steps toward getting to that magical place. And now, here you are. And then, and then I finally get to TSR and the fucking place closes down. <laughs> <laughs> we won't I, talk about that too much. <laughs> It's the it's 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 the, it's the small dark moment in Chris's path. I never, but, but I never got to actually work as a as an employee at TSR before the, their business collapsed. Really? I, I was I was hired to replace a TSR employee and told to keep going west. Oh, <laughs> Just keep back. driving west. Don't We're not back. in Lake Geneva anymore. Oh. <laughs> so. Talking about that ten-year-old to thirteen-year-old self to the guy who eventually published. Were there any lessons that you learned in your early? first attempts, uh, and then the following ones that kind of stuck with you as far as adventure building and yes. campaign? Yes, Like, what, what were those? The editor is always right. <laughs> the um, editor is always right. The editor is always right. A designer is often, even if a designer play tests their own stuff, they're not getting an objective look at the manuscript or the work. And so you have to trust an outside set of trained eyes to be able to tell you where the faults in your own work are. And uh, it was very clear to me after my first few submissions that I would go farther, faster, if I uh, took to heart everything that the editor told me and strove at every opportunity to um, not only give them what they wanted, but to exceed their expectations. And I think if, if I can owe my being here to anything, it's that I received a lot of diligent feedback from my editors, very well-meaning, um, intended obviously to make me better at what I'm doing, and I went to painstaking efforts to give them what they wanted. And that trained me as a writer, not to write for myself, but to write for others. I'm stealing this question here. 
Uh, this was Trevor's question, but I, I really wanted to ask it as a follow-up. That's right. All of you have to give me credit when you ask my questions <laughs> because that's really important I'm to me. I'm asking on behalf of Trevor Kidd. <laughs> so first of all, I would like to mention that's great advice because Shelley actually fired me as her editor. Yeah. And I was, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking, do you know I can think of one case where the editor wasn't right? Oh, yeah, remember when you, were, was, you did a little editing pass on confessions? I totally did. She, she was convinced I kept stepping on her funny. He did. He took away all my funny. But that is that's great advice for writing for publication. When you create ventures for your uh, adventures for your home campaign, do you approach it differently, knowing this isn't for a broader audience, or, yes. or is it still the same? No, I approach it very differently. Um, when I'm creating campaign material for my group, the only people I'm interested in making happy are the players. I never approach my campaigns with any sense that it's going to live beyond the experience my players are going to have with it, and so. All of my campaign work is framed from, you know, how can I use my adventures to further their specific character arcs? What can I add to this campaign that's going to take Trevor's character from the point he is now to some new place or give him something else that he can sort of hang on to, a new villain he can hate, a new NPC he can love? Mm -hmm. Everything is built with this very specific audience in mind. I don't write out... Uh, my homebrew adventure is the way I write adventures for publication. Adventures for publication are written with all of the words that a DM needs who doesn't have any other context to run the adventure. Since my campaign work is strictly for me, my campaign notes are enough to guide me. I don't need to articulate everything to myself as I would to someone else. And so I can create a lot more material a lot more quickly. And... Uh, and create enough stuff to sustain a campaign till infinity. Yeah. With that in mind, I'll stick with this topic. Do you have any any tips you might give people, uh, DMs, who are starting out with their first adventure or their first campaign that they're writing on their own? Yeah, I would say start small. Start local. Um, don't try to define the world until your characters are ready to experience it. Um, think about where what your characters' backgrounds are, what the class composition is, uh, if there is a particular party member, like a paladin, who has a benefactor, or a cleric who has a head priest, or a wizard who has a master, detail all the local things around the characters that they're going to interact with right at the gate, the town where they start in. And maybe a few places of interest outside the town where the adventurer can sort of leave the safe comfort of home. And then don't worry about anything else. Uh, the one caveat to that is, if you do have ideas that are going to that are beyond local, um, that, that could be important to the campaign later on, that you do record them so that you don't forget them. But also, it's okay while you're developing the small local stuff to think about the two or three sort of big arcs, the big plots that you hope the characters are gonna get swept up in. It's always nice to have at least two, preferably three, major campaign arcs uh, that you hope the characters will will graft onto. Um, I have a sort of a kind of a standard formula that one of those plot arcs is always war-themed mm -hmm. um, because war is an easy way to engage multiple types of characters and often has a certain amount of politics that come with it yeah. that I tend to favor in my campaigns. I like to run very political campaigns, as you well know. No, it's, I'm not going to complain. The last one I was in was awesome. So. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually saw a good example of that 
when I joined the campaign, because I joined in, it was fourth edition, and I joined in at the kind of Paragon level. I think we were 11th or 12th level at that point. But all the stories that people had at that point, uh, either, the other characters and players, were from their home island, right? I, I forget what it was, but I'm sure yeah. you don't. Uh, and it was it was all local stuff that exploded out into bigger politics or bigger issues exactly. or, the, or other things. The fourth edition Iomandra campaign was a classic example of that. I started with just an island. And this is a campaign that was built on the premise that the world is basically made up of thousands upon thousands of islands. And I did it because I was, at the time, thinking that the campaign would be like an episodic series, like Star Trek The Next Generation, where you're just going from one planet to the next, mm -hmm. and every planet is kind of its own story. And then you move on, and you may never go back to that planet again, and that's okay. Um, it actually didn't quite work out that way, <laughs> which is fine. Um, but at the time, I thought, we're just going to create the, the character's home island. We're going to say everybody's from there. There's like one town on the whole island, and it's not even that big. It's only 50 miles across. And I'm going to have stuff come to the island, sort of glimpses of the outside world, and introduce the characters to the world that way. Mm -hmm. Have a dragonborn villain who comes to the island looking for somebody who's gone missing, and through that dragonborn character, give you a sense of what the entire dragonborn empire is all about. Now I see why you say start small. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz that can be very very overwhelming. Yeah. Yes. So now you you play you 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 have the role of player and you you are a yes. dungeon master. Yes. I play obviously. infrequently. So you obviously prefer being a dungeon master. Mm, actually I like both equally, but I tend to fall into the role of dungeon master. Is that because we pressure you to be? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever asks me to go to a PAX Live game as a player. To play. Yeah. All right, so that's going to be our next thing. I'm going to talk to uh, to Failower and those guys. I'm yeah. like, what do we think about Jerry running a game and Mike being in it? I mean, uh, Chris being in it. That would be that would be a surprise for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So do you feel like as a player you're a better player to have in the group or a worse player to have in the group because of your experience as a dungeon master? Um, I'm actually, I think I'm a, a better player to have in a group because I'm not the type who instigates. I'm not looking, oh. I'm not looking we to. we sit here with two notorious instigators. I, what are you talking about? I have a certain sympathy for the dungeon master. Yeah. So I'm not looking to punch my way out of their story mm -hmm. um, and try to uh, put them in a place where they're suddenly going to be at unease. Yeah. Um, I like to work within the, confi the confined space that the DM has basically constructed for us. Uh, I'm also the type of person who doesn't mind just sitting back and listening to what's going on around me so I don't need to dominate. Um, that's something I actually learned as a DM too, by the way, which is that some of my best DMing has happened when I'm doing nothing. Just letting the players do yeah. nothing? Letting the players talk, mm -hmm. letting them figure out things out loud. Uh, decide on courses of action, argue with each other, have little little role-playing moments on the side. Some of my favorite um, sessions are when you know I realize 20 minutes have passed and I probably said only three words. <laughs> really? Yeah. How many times ha have you as a DM heard players talking and been like, that's a good idea, I'm going to use it. Like they're saying something, <laughs> something might be happening or they're yes. thinking something's oh, yeah. happening. I wasn't going to do that at all, but now they're Many times. <laughs> many plots, many many entire game sessions were built on something that somebody said during a session. We just gave you the idea for the clown. Yeah. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Can I not be in that session of the <laughs> Yeah, I'm not playtesting that clown. One, one of the other important considerations of a DM is that even though you may, have sort, you may be the, the person who is starting off the campaign, sort of laying the groundwork for the campaign, once the campaign starts, 
it becomes as much the player's world as it is yours. It's their character's eyes through which the campaign is sort of unfolding if it were a movie. They are the central characters. It's the, thing, it's the actions they take, the actions they don't take that sort of sets things. It only makes sense that a DM will be able to pull ideas out of the player's head and be able to sew those into the campaign um, to create an experience that's enriching for everybody. So I did want to ask about uh, your DM style and sort of the mechanics of the addition at play. Uh, I, I was in the game when you were a, a player, a fellow player. Oh, yeah. And I, one of the, the tricks, I think, also was you were on a lot of uh, allergy medication for uh, the cats at the, at the house. <laughs> oh, that's right. Also. That's something worth mentioning is that everybody at Wizards of the Coast except me has cats. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I have, I have an allergy to cats that's particularly deadly. It causes... Uh, my esophagus to close up and I can't breathe anymore. Ergo, I'd die. Um, <laughs> so I can't go over to anybody's house to play unless I am thoroughly, thoroughly doped up on meds. Wow. But that, that was a fourth Steady edition it. campaign. Yeah. When you move into the fifth edition campaign, are there certain elements of DMing that holds true no matter the edition? Do you need to change things depending on the edition's mechanics? Or how have you sort of felt that uh, play out from edition to edition? Uh, good question. I think that the fundamental aspects of the game are the same uh, in terms of a group of characters going on an adventure and the DM sort of delineating or helping the characters get to where the DM wants them to go and still giving the characters room to breathe and explore the world. The rules have never gotten in the way of that as far as I can tell. Uh, there have been subtle shifts in terms of flavor. Uh, fourth edition uh, emphasized certain tactical miniatures-based elements, a lot of the powers of the game uh, certainly required or mandated the use of a physical board. Um, fifth edition has gone back to sort of a more classical theater of the mind approach where miniatures are truly optional and nothing in the game relies on you being able to count squares. Uh, so uh, the, while the feel of my campaigns have never changed, Certainly some of the props I've brought and used, some of the way encounters have played out, uh, have adapted mm -hmm. uh, to the rules. Like uh, my, fifth edition, I, my, my fifth edition games do not depend on miniatures. Uh, I don't have to bring large battle mats or spend an hour before the game <laughs> preparing a battle mat in order to play. So I can only assume that you are the one creating those fantastic props for the PAX games. <laughs> I, know, I was curious about the props too. Uh, speaking of props. Speaking of props, this is the PAX games are sort of a rare delight insofar as I can actually just ask for something. Somebody will throw a bunch of money at it, and a third person will create it. In fact, I do not create most of the props for PAX. Uh, most of the props are uh, you don't commissioned. create them with your hands. Well, that's well, that's but well, that's true. That, that's a very good point. <laughs> I'm not actually building the props, but I am telling somebody what it is I need. Yeah. I so, feel like that's how my child views the entirety of life right now. <laughs> <laughs> Ask for something, magically appears. Somebody, appear. somebody money throws will be a lot of money at, at it. it. Yeah. Uh, really, he's yeah. going to imagine that's something. Exactly he's it. going I, to babble words that don't make any sense yes. to you, and eventually you will figure out what's oh, in his yeah. head. Yeah. So yes. You that's are the best like part. a toddler. I, I, I am just like Quinn. I will. <laughs> I just imagine it, I wish for it, and suddenly it miraculously you appears. You also have a Grandma Judy, it sounds like. It's, uh, <laughs> so, like, for instance, when we did the map of uh, Jim Dark... Ma when we did the, the building of Jim Dark Magic's mansion, mm -hmm. I built a, uh, a 2D 
map to sort of at scale to indicate how big it needed to be. So all the dimensions were there. It was kind of like an architectural diagram. Yes. It showed where all the rooms were positioned in relation to each other. It gave a sense of the scope of the structure. And then we handed it off to um, Matt Smith, one of our sculptors, to actually build it to spec. Uh, the same was true for the uh, Acquisitions Incorporated Battle Balloon Castle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt had a lot more leeway with Dragon Spear Castle. I just said, give me a cool castle that kind of looks like this picture. Um, and thus he went to work and, making right. 80,000 tiny yeah. little stones out of hand. Yeah, the, we, we actually have another podcast <laughs> with Matt that we should probably link to at the bottom of this one. Yes. That was a fun one, too, yeah. talking yeah. about the, the castle and the The, the Mecha Halister uh, was something that was definitely originated by me in the adventure. I had a very specific idea for how big it should be and what it should be, and Matt pretty much built what was in my head. So if we haven't formally announced it anywhere else, uh, we are clearly talking about the next PAX game, and there will be a live D&D game happening at PAX East this year, although we haven't really announced formally specific players yet or the specific adventure but we might have so i'm gonna say it now and if it gets cut you won't hear this and that's great but it's (laughs) it's it's gonna be scott mike jerry and patrick rothfuss yeah so that's that's gonna be our 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 cast and of course chris will be running it yeah four players is more than reasonable um (laughs) for an event like this. oh you might get a fifth player at some point not not this game but we we might hit you with a fifth player game oh i i'm i'm all we had such a great experience with five at the last live game. I, I certainly see that as a possibility, but kind of getting getting a smaller core group for the PAX East experience where it tends to be more low-key, um, not quite so heavily produced, yeah. uh, is kind of nice. Uh, I know that we'll be looking to uh, tie in thematically with the Elemental Evil storyline, which uh, was recently announced. Yes, mm-hmm. good. People are pretty excited about that yeah. one. So when we asked about designing your home game versus a published adventure, is that... Pax game, a th- sort of third type of adventure <laughs> that you n- need yes. to create with a live yes. audience yes. and players' Pac- interjections. The, the live games are definitely a unique, are unique snowflakes, partly because they're, I don't have the flexibility to do just exactly whatever I want mm-hmm. um, because there are certain uh, demands placed upon it. Like, for instance, we try to tie our Pax games in thematically with things that we're doing mm-hmm. Um, we might, the, te- we the might same be teasing time. something too. It's like exactly. we might want to like very put a subtle hint about something that's coming up, and so you got to figure yes. out how to work that and in. Figure as out well how to work in all the little things that people ask for uh, to to create an experience that's not only entertaining for the fans, but also delivers on uh, some of the things that we want to trumpet on the sort of the marketing side. But more than that is, it is a live improv game. Mm-hmm. You can't prepare for that experience in any reasonable sense because the players are out to put punch not only holes in your story, but you know. That's what I was curious about. Have they ever gone off the rails or are you? Oh my they God. Have, they have always gone yeah. off the rails. Are you like mo- most of it or much of it? The, the game is 99% improv. Wow. Literally after the first, after I've done with the opening exposition, yes. I have no idea where it's gonna go. Nothing is rehearsed beforehand. No. The players and me don't even talk about the about oh, yeah. the the adventure before the Doesn't game. Doesn't it make your stomach hurt thinking about this? Yeah. To be like, I wouldn't even. Want, I don't want to be a player, but so, I could not even imagine. So imagine, imagine you're about in a costume, no less. In a costume, <laughs> behind a curtain, five minutes before it's going to open up, and you're going to be staring into the face of five thousand people in Benaroyal Hall in Seattle. <laughs> And you don't know what you're going to do. Another twelve thousand. Another twelve thousand online. Another twelve thousand online yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I don't. 
and you have no idea what's going to happen for that three hours. I had always assumed it was the opposite, that it was a structured adventure, and you kind of gave them the beats of what was going to oh, happen. Man. No. No. Nope. <laughs> so the, they yeah, have I no clue. I, mean, I, I talked to Mike a little bit about stuff. Faylauer, sorry when mm -hmm. I say Mike, not, not Kruhulik. Uh, a little bit about the stuff that I might know going in, just, just like the day of. Like, oh yeah, there's gonna, there might be some dragons or whatever, right? But no one else knows anything. And I know and I very little, because Chris will be like, so I have these, these, these are my plans. And then I watch what happens, I'm like, well, yeah, like 20% of what Chris had planned actually <laughs> went off. But. Now, I, I imagine in my head ways that the story might go. Yeah. It's gotten better now that I can, like, for instance, I did a lot less thinking about the adventure, the last D&D Live game in Seattle, because I've gotten to the point now where I know Mike and Jerry and Scott particularly well enough to kind of be able to predict where they will try to break loose and where they will conform. That is not easy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not easy. No. Um, and every time a new player gets thrown in, <laughs> it makes it even harder. Uh, but no, I've th there's there's very little preparation, and it's all all improv. Now that said, I if I have specific characters, or sorry, not characters, non-player characters, mm -hmm. NPCs, that I know are going to show up in the adventure, I will spend time before the game thinking about what those NPCs sound like, um, what their sort of modus operandi is, what they will do if, if the characters do not intervene, um, to sort of get a sense of, okay, I can't, I can't own their characters and what their characters are going to do, but at least I know enough about the characters that I'm putting in the story to be able to run them well or run them effectively. That said, it, usually what comes out of their mouth is completely improv. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. You do really good voices, too, for your I, I try. I we have, try. We have a, a plethora of good voices. Bilzland does good voices as well. We got a, some guys in the office. We should have them recorded. There we go. So yeah. because we're, this is Dungeon Master Appreciation Month, um, and you are Dungeon Master to the Stars, Chris Perkins, as your agent, um, <laughs> <laughs> what, are, how, what are some good ways that players could appreciate their Dungeon Masters? Uh, well... Keep it PG, buddy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I said to say that. And you should really be appreciating your Dungeon Master all the time. But in particular, this month, we want Dungeon Masters to really feel special. I would say, um, if you want your Dungeon Master to feel special, uh, buy them dinner before the game once mm. in a while. Or uh, if you... Uh, really want, or just let them know that you have a really cool idea for a way, a thing that could happen to your character and you want to talk to them about it. Because oh. that just means that you're kind of engaged in their campaign and are looking for ways to make your character a more integral part of the campaign. Let's do something. Oh, you mean Trevor and I are in the same we're in a, yeah. Well, we decided that we're, we're half-brother and half sister in that game. Well, that's cool. Yeah. We're, we're running with that all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah. So. And, uh, or you could go up to your dungeon master and say, Ha, I have a really good way for you to kill off the rogue if you want. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God you, I'm not the rogue. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. That no. would be that it's would bad. be our other advice. our other coworker, Laura. Um, our why, boss? why are you trying to wait? Yeah, why are you trying to why, why are you trying to kill off Laura, Shelley? Why are you gonna? That's how rumors get started. <laughs> also, if you if you notice your DM's books are getting a little ratty, you could buy him a new one. Oh, that, would... oh. that was not a plug to buy more D and D books. Yes, it was. Go buy more D and D books. <laughs> Just saying. I mean, nice. wear and tear. Oh, that's it a good happens. Idea. A DM cracks open books a lot. Oh yeah. A lot. Yes. 
I brought my first edition Dungeon Master's Guide to the last yeah. podcast, and no page is still glued <laughs> oh, to yeah. the inner no, of course binding not. now at this point. Of course point, not. It's all yeah. Uh, so we're getting close to the end of our recording time. I just wanted to ask if there was any possibly final questions we wanted to throw to Chris's way. I, feel like I know we we've got. Go I, got I, I got a couple. If we have time for a couple, sure, of course. Okay. Do it, Trevor. So uh, I hear that there's another article series coming up where you will be featured. I'm not sure if anyone's told them yet. But. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always the last to know. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you know about this yet? Uh, I, I'd heard rumblings of it. Yes, I don't. I don't know exactly what my involvement is going to be yet. Oh, okay. Um, part of that was contingent on m- me getting my fifth edition campaign off the ground. Yeah, I think I think we talked about it, and we're hoping it's some kind of like behind the DM screen kind Certainly of. Certainly, I had, a, I had a lot of experience working on the DM experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I had it was those were those articles were a great pleasure to write. They were also incredibly time consuming. Yes. Um, they would take Imagine. me, each article took me about, I don't know, six to eight hours. After just encapsulating the ideas as succinctly as possible and then kind of self-editing myself. Um, it, 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 was, it, was a, it was a fun exercise, but really, really tough on a week-to-week basis. So, but I would like to do that again. The thing is that, for me, my campaign is what sparks a lot of my ideas. Yeah. And um, it's where... I am constantly surprised as a DM mm-hmm. because no matter how much experience I've had DMing, whenever I run a game, there's always things that surprise me. And it's those things that set me off on a course to talking, to writing about them and, and talking about them. And um, it's always better for me to write those articles when I feel like I'm discovering something about dungeon mastering. Yeah. One of the great joys of dungeon mastering for those who have never tried it is it's always a new and invigorating experience. It is creatively rewarding endlessly. Um, and it's, it's something that is so creatively compelling that once you get into it and once you start, you can't stop. You're basically a DM for life. Oh, oh. Yeah. Well, I had another question, but I'm, we're stopping there. That was, that was pretty much perfect. <laughs> That's really good. We'll save, we'll save all the questions I have for the next time we have Chris Sound bites. On. Yeah, I'm just. You are a DM for life. Well, uh, we do appreciate it. your time as part of DM Appreciation Month, and absolutely we'd love to get you back on the podcast much sooner than later. So it sounds like as the campaign develops, the article series will also be in development and uh, hopefully appearing in uh, some sometime in the possible future. How about, in, how about instead of an article series, we do it like a puppet show? We do a puppet show. <laughs> I, 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 will, I, I have Wouldn't several cameras yes. and some mics. We, yeah. could, we could do this. Of course, we'll, that, we'll have Matt build a little theater. That's right. Yeah. Oh, wait, I don't think we have the budget for that. Oh. Well, <laughs> yeah, a cardboard box costs so much there money. You. Okay, here we go. We'll cardboard box, some paint, we're good. <laughs> so, I like it. Well, as always, thanks for listening to the Dungeons & Dragons podcast. You can download the podcast from the D&D website directly under the media section or subscribe from iTunes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.